0: Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is an independent music podcast, and speaking of which, my guest today is Stephen Heath, and the song that played us in is from his new album, Gavin Gruesome. The song is entitled, I Can't Take It, and that is out January 1st, 2021, so please purchase that. It's uh, on Perpetual Doom, and all the links for Stephen and Perpetual Doom and where you can buy this great album are in the show notes, and please do buy it and support music through Bandcamp and March because this is a rough time for musicians uh, who can't tour, who make their living from touring. So please uh, check that out. Um, Stephen is a great guy. We had a great conversation. He's uh, very interesting. He's also, I didn't know, also was an actor. And uh, I did know this. He's played with a lot of different uh, bands and artists. He's a very talented guy. Um, so we will get to that conversation in just a moment. I just want to say real quick, uh, I got some feedback about my podcast and somebody said they wished I talked more or I told some stories at the top in the intro. I'm conflicted by this because um, I have always made the show about the guest. That's always been the focus that people aren't here for me. They're here to listen to an artist they love. And um, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, email me at conversations with Dwyer at gmail.com. Let me know. Do you want to hear more about my my silly life or whatever? It on my uh, on my Patreon page. I do have a blog. If you become a Patreon subscriber, where I write uh, about songs and my personal life and how they relate sometimes, and also goes into some history and stuff. So you could become a Patreon subscriber and learn more about me that way. Also on Patreon, I post videos of the conversation. Uh, I have to ask Stephen if he wants his video up there. I haven't asked him yet. I. I always do. I'm all about consent when it comes to what I post. (laughs) Uh, But uh, there's uh, always extra footage. A lot of times my interviews go longer than what you get on the free podcast. So uh, you get extended, unedited versions of conversations and blogs and all kinds of stuff. Um, And I'm going to be doing some giveaways. Speaking of giveaways, I'm going to hopefully be rebranding the website and logo and everything in the new year. So there should be some new merch and cool stuff coming. Speaking of which, I have a very special announcement about my podcast and something very magical that happened. Uh, uh, and it's no better time to, to mention this at the end of the year. Uh, you may recall earlier this year, I had John Lurie, uh, the legendary John Lurie on as a guest. And we were talking about uh, this show that he had been filming and, um, I had, when he came on the show, I thought this was a thing, it was coming out, and when we talked, he didn't know what he was going to do with it, he's like, maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a TV show, I don't know, but long story short, when we stopped recording, I said, hey, I'm, I'm friends with Adam McKay, do you mind if I send him some of the clips that you sent me, to, and see what he thinks, long story short, they sold the show, they collaborated, it's coming out on HBO January 22nd, I believe? Uh, if, if it's not the 22nd, it's the 21st, HBO Max, uh, I'm going to be a co-producer on this thing, and it all happened because of my little podcast. Uh, my podcast was the bridge to the show getting sold to HBO, and uh, quite honestly, I'm grateful and thankful and can't believe it. Um, and to, to be associated with John Lurie and his magnificent brilliance is uh, surreal to me because he's been a guy who's been in my life uh, forever. Um, like I said, all things Stephen Heath are in the show notes. Um, uh, so are all things Matt Dwayne. I have my link tree in there. So you can go, and like I said, you could become a Patreon subscriber. Follow my social media. Because uh, uh, in January, the new... I have most of my January episodes or uh, actually all of them are recorded and in the can. There's Dylan Baldy from the Cloud Nothings. Uh, Steve... Gun, Charlene Yi, uh, Caitlin from Free Love Fenner, and I actually have some of February recorded. Anyway, doesn't matter, but that way you can know what's coming and who's going to be on and who I want to have on, and uh, you could follow the show. So please check out my show. And just real quick, this is the longest episode, longest intro I have done all year. But some of you may know I took a break from doing the podcast. I didn't do it for two years, and I brought it back. Uh, January of last year, and I just want to say it's the I'm so grateful that I brought it back because, you know, like the John Lurie thing, it's been great. I've talked to some magnificent people like John Lurie and today's Stephen Heath and uh, Tim Presley and Harmar Superstar. Uh, go check out some of my old episodes, but also I just am thankful that all those people took the time out to do my podcast, and people like Adam McKay, Wayne Kramer, Margaret Kramer, and Danny Bland and uh, many others, Sub Pop, uh, Beckett, Sub Pop, Lewitt, Perpetual Doom, all helped me curate these guests, and I'm very grateful. I hope you all have a happy new year. Thank you for listening to the show this year. It's going to be even better and better next year. I can't wait. And now, here is my conversation with Stephen Heath. Please enjoy.
1: Take it. Make a day. Can I sip my coffee? Is it is it like an AMSR grossness? If I do this,
0: no. I had a guy who chewed ice a couple months ago.
1: I, that sounds like an old <laughs> insole. Go chew ice.
0: <laughs> I also had a guy once, and it was an episode I couldn't air. Literally, was eating soup the entire time. Like, it was like a spoon of, and it was just like. <sighs> And then wow. he got in his car and started <laughs> driving somewhere, and I was just like, "What the fuck is happening?" Whoa! I regret not keeping the. I I was so I was like angry that I I deleted it, and I'm like, "Oh, that would have been great to
1: to that have is saved." An interesting way to go for sure.
0: <laughs> he was like this Detroit artist that where they they were like building turning abandoned homes into art installations. It was like they were, he was doing really cool stuff, but I, I, I don't know what the disconnect there was with audio and soup. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like the worst. It may be, if he's an artist, it could have been some sort of a bit of a performance art installation. Thing. <laughs> so hard in the paint here. Oh,
0: I didn't even think of that. You you know, listener. your your brain is more creatively advanced
1: than mine. I just got he's uptight. Not- and <laughs> more, Obtuse and contradictory in my behavior, so I recognize it. (laughs) Did you? Are you a native Californian? I am. I was born in D.C., but I spent like all of two months there as a baby. So yeah, from two years old on, California. Did the? Do you feel like your two
0: months in D.C. really? Some of that DIY uh, Discord energy seeped into (laughs) you.
1: Or like bureaucratic Efficiency <laughs> <mind of thinking. laughs> One or the other um, No I do feel An association with DC Because my parents Lived there My dad worked For the park service So he was in the government And they always There were just a lot Of good stories About the city At that time So it always Kind of looms A little bit um, There's a sculptor There named Fred Or not there But he Frederick Douglas Who did this great Piece on the National Cathedral And And uh, my dad is a huge fan of his work, so when last year when I got to go to D.C., finally for the first time, I got to go and see this sculpture. And so, you know, the, they filmed – did they film – what's it called there? Um, I almost said Psycho. Um, what's her name? Where she walks down the stairs backwards oh, on her um,
0: – Oh, uh, The Exorcist. I think they did,
1: yeah. So I was for a second I was like, was that Boston – I got to go to the stairs I went to the stairs Um in the exorcist And took some pictures there And just like There's a lot of good landmarks there You see it in all the Jack Ryan movies I like DC
0: Yeah It's I went there in the 90s When it was real Still pretty rough And uh Like mm-hmm. Like underground Like some of the clubs Were like real dingy And undergroundy And then right. I went back And they were all super nice Like it totally gentrified And Like now it's like expensive It's like almost up there With New York
1: right? I have no idea. I mean, the the area we were in was all business, like government buildings. It seemed like in museums, I had an incredible museum visit, but, uh, I don't know. I didn't get a sense of the city in any way other than a tourist. Like at two in the morning, I took one of those scooters to the monument and oh, saw Lincoln, cool. uh, and I had a little bit of a heater on, and that was like a, just a solo jam that was really cool. But I had no experience culturally other than like where a tourist would go.
0: Did uh, uh, did your father move to LA for like government jobs, or did he just jump out of?
1: No, we. I grew up in Northern California. He moved. Uh, they moved out there for uh, his park service gig. He actually hitchhiked a lot. To they're from Tennessee. My folks are from Tennessee. I'm not sure the exact timeline. He hitchhiked, though, to San Francisco. And once he saw, like, the ocean and the Redwoods, he was sold. And they were beatniks, so he was obsessed with City Lights books and, you know, getting to hang out with those people. And uh, I think they might have gone back to D.C. for his job, and that's where I was born, and then moved back. I know I'm screwing up something. But, I mean, it it doesn't make sense that they would have gone back and forth. But...
0: So they were into like literature and music, so you
1: kind of grew up in, a, in that kind of environment? Yes, he was a bookstore guy. He worked at a bookstore, I don't know the name of it, in uh, Berkeley, and he said he would spend his whole paycheck before he got it <laughs> on books. And uh, Yeah, huge record collector. He was a total vinyl head. I grew up with this a bookcase or a record bookcase that he had made, floor-to-ceiling, massive classical and jazz collection. Uh, that over the years he's had to whittle down and as my parents have gotten older he sold a bunch of it oh rare stuff they just couldn't move and carry it from place to place they had to move a couple times and it was like you know hundreds thousands of pounds of records yeah that kid wow that's like, incredible though and the crucial ones did you get it did you did you steal some he gave me some, I said, give me some, cause I also have had my problem with records. And I mean, probably 10 or 15 years ago, I got rid of like eight or 10 feet of records uh, after moving. I was like, I don't listen to these. I don't want to, I don't want to lift this up ever again, <laughs> Off the ground. put it down somewhere else. <laughs> so I whittled it down to like, I've got like this many. And uh, you know, a lot of record buds, like Aaron, the guys in LA takedown anywhere we go, they go straight to the record store and start sifting through the bins. And I give myself like two minutes and I leave. Um, so he gave me some crucial ones uh, that I can't remember off the top of my head, but he gave me some beautiful, probably 20 records. Yeah. That's the thing about, it's like we have a bunch of
0: records and we got a bunch from her, my wife's dad. And it's like, I'm like, part of me wants to keep them. Cause I'm like, Oh, my kids might discover, like I, I want to inspire. But yeah. we're also needed to move. Like if I had a house that I was never going to move, then I would be like, who gives
1: a shit? Let, yeah. Let my kids the- lug that shit when I'm dead. It's a curation process. I noticed my, my buddy, Aaron, he, um, he's very good about getting rid of, he knows what he has. He knows what he needs a replacement of, what he wants a new one of, what he wants two of, what he can get rid of. So he's always kind of cycling and recycling his collection. I mean, it's always growing, but he's quite efficient at maintaining it like you would trim like a beautiful indoor plant. <laughs> That's a great...
0: <laughs> what is your attraction to, uh, to vinyl? Because I, I, I'm... Uh, like, part of me is like, oh, I don't need this. Music is everywhere. This is just a waste of money and space. But I can't, like, I can't quit.
1: For me, it's, it's the, well, it's to quote Spinal Tap, sort of Spinal Tap, sort of totemistic. Um, <laughs> at this point, because I don't even really listen to much music, almost at all. I have two record players. I have two receivers, a nice Marantz. I've got two sets of beautiful speakers, um, and none of them are set up. Um, so it is a tactile thing. It's a comfort thing. It reminds me of my childhood. You know, records were always being put on. Aaron's coming up a lot in this interview already. He, Aaron, when he goes in the house, he puts on a record. It's like coming home to take off the shoes, put on the slippers, put on a record. Um, and I don't do that anymore. Uh, but I just feel like I have to have him around. It's like, you gotta have, I don't wrap myself in a blanket that often, but I have a, <laughs> nice blankets and just you got to have a blanket I have a nice bathrobe I don't really put on the robe <laughs> around the house like you Hefner but to not have a robe seems undignified
0: <laughs> that's what do you feel like that defined your interest in music growing up around all those
1: records or was it something else that sort of it was something else as well but that was a huge part of it music was always on a ton of jazz, a ton of classical was always cranking. And the front room was like my dad's little den. The wall of books, of art books, tons of art books. And there would always be some good jazz coming out of there or classical music. But he was into the stuff that he had that lit me on fire was Chicago, Feeling Stronger Every Day, was ABBA, a lot of Beatles. Um, so his musical taste definitely started me out. Absolutely. That's
0: interesting, because I, I wonder if, like, listening to, because jazz, because my parents didn't listen to, they'd listen to, like, three records, but I grew up, like, later I became involved in jazz, and jazz is around my kids all the time, I'm like, does that help you create, a, like, a more intricate ear? That was not, I think I had some grammar
1: errors there. Create <laughs> <laughs> an intricate it sounds like an album title, The Creation of the Intricate Ear. Hollywogs too. I I'm assuming it must. I mean, it may I was interested in jazz in high school right away. Like that was somewhere I went. We had a jazz program in my high school and you had to learn you had to go through it to get to the rock music program. So it was definitely in my way. But you know, I joined jazz band on bass and you learned to sight read and like learn standards like String of Pearls, Big bag Standards to, you know, some Coltrane and Giant Steps and things like that. Um, and so that was an alien, certainly, when I got there, because I've been listening to grown up with Mingus and Modern Jazz Quartet and who, whomever. Um,
0: That's great stuff to grow up with. Like, I
1: mean, that was stuff
0: I didn't... I had to discover in my 20s and 30s where... What was your musical childhood? Were your parents cranking jams or... It was almost like a, a form of abuse, I think. <laughs> oh,
1: listen, <dude. laughs>
0: I well like they listened to like a lot of Ann Murray. Uh my dad had the Okay. <laughs> like and then like the other records we had were like the soundtrack to the Alamo, John the John Wayne one. And Who's, like
1: who wrote that? Do you remember?
0: I don't. That's a good score? question. Was and, it the soundtrack of the score? I guess it was Probably the score But there was a speech By John Wayne in it And I'm pretty sure That's why my dad bought it Because he Like he cried When John Wayne died Which is just oh, I, Understood He, he clearly I did <laughs> <laughs> And he also cried When Reagan got shot So I think we know Where <laughs> my dad leaned Politically
1: <laughs> yeah. Got it You're I cried
0: too. because Hinckley didn't Do it right Oh <laughs> <laughs> Sorry It's alright
1: But Um the yeah, two but were huge. Was Daffy Duck, um, uh, the disco duck. Oh, yeah, that would- it was a disco duck album. And there was another, there was a Peter Pan record that my sister had that was, um, gosh, it was bad. Like the songs, I mean, politically, there it just it was pretty racist. When we were kids, we'd sing along, but it had some great rhythms to it. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there was, yeah, it was, it was not a good, and of course then my town was a lot of classic rock, which wasn't very... Where are you from? Outside Chicago. Whereabouts? It's a suburb called Streamwood, which is really, do you know the suburbs of Chicago well?
1: No, slightly. I have, I've wound up with a lot of friends from Chicago, um, and so... An old boss of mine, she went to New Trier, that high school. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's uh, that's the North North Shore. They had the good school. I got a buddy who now is staying in Evanston. Is, yeah. that, or is that Evanston, right?
0: yeah, that's a city just north of... That's where Eddie Vedder's from, if you really want to get into it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I lived in the city for a long time, and that's where I, I think because Chicago's such a diverse music town, I started getting into... Different kinds of music there Because Right
1: There's a lot of jazz A lot of free jazz
0: Yeah it's huge And it's like And you know The blues scene Is pretty crazy Still At least when I was there It was like I saw Sugar Blue play In a bar When it was just me And two other people I was like This guy played with the Stones Like why is Why is no one here
1: That's surprising But I guess You I, know If you play every night In Chicago Maybe you have those Maybe I had a, a boss early When I moved to LA Who went and saw Joe Henderson at Catalina's, which is a jazz club it used to be on, on Cahuanga. Do you remember that place? Yeah. Uh, and he came back the next day and, uh, this guy called me Baba Bowie. Uh, and I'd never heard Howard Stern, <laughs> <laughs> my Chris Brown. He started calling me Baba Bowie, Baba Bowie. And I was like, I don't know. My nickname's Baba Bowie, I guess. I <laughs> later it was not a complimentary name, <laughs> although I think he meant it. I took it in the spirit in which it was intended. But he went and saw Joe Henderson, and uh, he said there were six people there. Yeah, do you... like, why is this place empty? This is insane.
0: I have a lot of L.A. band friends that don't like playing L.A. Do you like playing L.A.?
1: I love playing L.A. just because I probably played here more than anywhere. So, um, but I definitely went through a period where it was incredibly difficult before I would found... A group of friends and like minded musical people, kind of. I've not experienced the cold, jaded LA. Actually, I have. That's wrong. Audience. I was about to say industry audience. I have experienced that, and it's weird. Um, But not in the last 10 years.
0: Yeah, I don't. I mean, as an audience member, I never. F- felt I I mean I always felt audiences were really like especially Spaceland and the Echo like those were always great places to see music and I don't I never I don't know maybe at the Wiltern I don't I don't know where where that would be
1: happening For me it happened at a party we played like an event uh is a long time ago and uh it was definitely like a cool scene and people were very conscientious of not do they like them yet? Can I like them before someone else likes them? Like it was just a cold crowd that was there to be seen and find out what was up, and the band was kind of in the way. Oh. That's, and I, it was definitely weird. we were like, all right. That's got to be – I mean, I've
0: performed, and I get when, the, when it's that kind of weird silent
1: tension. Yeah, you're like, no, is no one going to do anything? I think that's the horrible thing people think about. But, yeah, like Spaceland – which is gone now, but Zebulon, have you been have, to the Zebulon in L.A.?
0: I haven't been to Zebulon, but I there's usually there's I haven't been able to see much music in the last since I became a dad, which I'm planning on changing. Right. How old is your daughter, say? Five
1: and seven months. Two. Two. Yeah. Thank you. Wait. Five years old. Got it. In my mind, I was like, five months and seven months? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, Irish kids. We, we don't waste time.
1: <laughs> okay, right on. Five and some Congratulations. Very cool.
0: Did you, did you migrate down to L.A. To, be to start playing music, or how did that come?
1: No, I came down as an actor. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I came down to pursue an acting career. Uh, I played in bands all through high school and after high school. And my buddies in my high school band, they all got out of college. And sort of the routine had been, they'd go away to college during the year. I'd stay in Northern California and do two plays during the school year. Um, and then they'd come back and we'd play shows all summer. And it worked really well. And then they came back, we were ready to tackle that band full time. And at that point, just I was on bass in that band. I was in that band, Stroke Nine. Uh, they had an early 2000s hit. They did really well. Um, and it was, the decision was like, I'm going to be in this band for the next 10 years or like pursue this acting career and still play music on the side. So that's why I came down. That's why, what, I,
0: I didn't know you pursued acting. That's uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I studied theater for two seconds, but I did theater in Chicago and stuff. So it's, uh, and I could see why you would be like, I I got very frustrated. Did you enjoy it? Did you, did you want to leave acting or were you just like,
1: I loved it. I really loved it. I, um, I had done a lot of theater. So when I moved to LA, it was not like highly respected, super legit theater, but it, it was great. You know, I had a great theater resume, like a full page that I had to pull things out of. Um, and so moving to LA was a transition going to trying to audition for other things for TV and film. The part that I found difficult was, and this was my own mistake in how I decided to pursue it, I now see, as opposed to staying in a creative mindset and doing what I did was trying to become successful, made it unpleasant. Headshots, dealing with managers and agents. And uh, that was a difficult balancing act for me, um, emotionally, psychologically, not getting super frustrated. Yeah, I I did it for 10 years, seven years. And then there was just a big moment where I had a manager that they had told me a lot of things were going to happen and I was not smart enough or I was so desperate that I really bought that. This is what will occur. X, Y, and Z. And so when it didn't, I was really frustrated. Um, And it was really immature and kind of silly on my part. But, you know, I guess that's how you learn those things. So then that's when I dropped the whole ball. And I didn't quit acting. I joined a theater company. But I quit pursuing it and trying to have it be a career for myself. And then after that, of course, I got some incredibly great parts. And some things happened because I wasn't strangling the life out of this thing I was trying to pursue. Do you feel like that
0: you're changing the way you viewed it like your attitude is why you got those parts did that have any because i feel like when you start go not giving a fuck that seems to for some reason especially in acting it seems to make the biggest difference in the world
1: i yeah i think so with acting because if you're in that position in band you still have a thing to do whatever you're feeling you still are going to play the guitar part and when you're acting if you're in a room and you're feeling that it's radiating And there's nothing else except for that feeling. So the difficulty is, and I did this and encountered this myself in an effort to not give a fuck earlier on, I overshot the mark by quite a distance and became angry. And I would see, I've seen that a lot in other people as well. So not giving a fuck ideally would be neutral, I'm just not going to try and do all this for a specific outcome. I'm going to do what I need to do for me to be interested and stay entertained and stay engaged. But in overshooting the mark, I would be angry going in ahead of time. Fuck these people. These casting directors don't know anything. I'll go into this audition. Mm -hmm. And that attitude is a death knell as well. So it took a quitting, so to speak, (laughs) even though I wasn't like quitting a job. So yes, once I let it go, And throughout that period of 10 years, say, every time something good would happen, it would be in a period of time where I wasn't really paying attention. And I'd get a good job. And then I'd focus and go, ooh, I got to maximize this. And then that would all dissipate with this kind of obsessive, toxic energy. I don't know if it was toxic. but So, yes, once that was all said and done, The biggest thing that happened was I was doing a play and a friend of mine invited this wonderful casting director and I didn't know. And I just did my performance and there were 30 people in the audience and just had a great time, did whatever I did. And consequently, I did the best version of what I could do. And that woman gave me a bunch of jobs over the years. Her name's Joanna Ray and she's been incredibly supportive and has said, you know, she casts for some wonderful people. And uh, if I had known she was there that night, I would not have been, I did not have the maturity or the artistic purpose or something to maintain that lack of self-consciousness. If I had known she was there, it would have fallen apart. And I would have been trying to impress her on some level.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I I feel like I went down a similar road with, and it got to the point where I, I started doing it because I loved it and it was fun and it, and I liked the creativity of it here. It became about everything, but those things I felt like, and I really felt like I was, and I think like what you said, there was a level, there was a maturity. And I think I I, I was also naive and we're like people, same thing. They're like, this is going to happen. And I was like, fuck yeah. And it was like, and then I almost had a nervous breakdown and it, because it became, I, I, and I, I took me, I don't know 10 years to learn that LA if you don't move to LA as an actor to be an artist you this is you move here for the business and that's I, I maybe I'm but that was like the whole business aspect I couldn't get is against how my brain works
1: it is hard I think the the way to be successful. I think the I think it's the same as music or anything almost though you move to Los Angeles to put yourself in proximity of the people who could give you a job. And I would get sidetracked on the minutia of like, I need a website. I need new headshots. You can really get bogged down in sort of the bureaucracy of that stuff and think that's going to affect your career and your artistic output. And, uh, I think that's where I would go off, you know, it's like with music trying to get, you know, you write write good songs, perform them as well as you can, record them well to whatever degree you you see that marker, and just go along doing what you do, and stuff will happen. Whatever's going to happen will happen. And I think the pursuing the idea of pursuing it for me was a mistake. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm moving it here to I'm going to take some steps, and that's going to give me a career. Yeah, I. I see
0: Yeah, I feel, and, like, guys like Tom Cruise, I think they're just, their drive and want, it's like, I mean, you look at Tom Cruise, and just, the guy's laser vision, like, I'm gonna be famous, like, you could just see it on him. And it's also
1: organic to him. Yes. He's not doing something, he's not departing, on the serve, from what we can see, he's not departing from who he is as a person, and having to change gears, did you, your thinking change when you moved
0: more into music? Like that approach of like, I need to do this and have a website. Like, was it more of a, I guess, a a, a pure approach to music?
1: Um, only perhaps in that I wasn't trying to do anything with it at that point. I was just like, I want, I had very small goals, very small achievable goals. I want to finish a body of songs And I want to be able to play shows. I kind of look at a lot of things like that. I have kind of an option paralysis personality. So I have to really winnow it down to small steps and and kind of narrow, a narrow pathway. So it was really just, I want to play shows and have enough songs finished to play some shows. Um, and then that same thing would happen. A bunch of friends responded really positively, and I went, Oh, 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 I have to take this seriously. So there still was that ebb and flow of trying to balance just doing it and doing whatever I'm doing. And then seeing that someone likes something. I mean, I suppose that's like the performer in me. Cause I'm kind of gregarious like that. I like to be funny. And if you're trying to be funny and people laugh, you got to take no and be like, oh, that was funny. Okay, I got to do that. But that can kind of eat your brain as well. Yeah. I would... then you, you go immediately from doing a thing to chasing a thing.
0: Does that seem like a common... Because I relate to that. Like, does that? Do you think that's a common sort of thing artists struggle with, That finding that balance between those two things? Because it...
1: I think some... Do. I, I've encountered a number in the last few years, I think, who don't seem to. And it's been a huge learning experience and, like, the most amazing thing. Um, I mean, I think it, it depends on a personality type. I've met a lot of musicians who are not, you know, my big influences when I was a kid were people were, you know, front classic frontmen who put on a show, if you're going on stage, you need to entertain the crowd. Give them their money's worth. Um, how can, you know, so like David Lee Roth would be the epitome of that. And so I met a lot of performers and musicians who don't, they're still putting on a show, but it's just a different, kind of works backwards from what's going to, how will the songs be played best? And any performative elements or show elements will just, come from however that's done. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a conflict for them, necessarily. Unless maybe they're just shy, and that could be a thing. D- did
0: you pick up some of those things from, like... Yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the shy thing, because I, I, I'm sorry I jumped back. but like Because when we were talking about the music scene in L.A. and being standoffish, I was like, when I moved here, it was still pretty a lot of shoegaze. So as they called it. And so that was the approach was to be sort of more laid back. And, and I grew up watching David Yao. (laughs) So it was like complete. uh, And so I was always a little like, why is everyone being so laid back?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I grew up like my first brush. My buddy Max started taking me to Gilman street in the East Bay in high school. And so we're going to Gilman street seeing, I don't know. Have you heard of that place?
0: I think I think Tim Presley talked about that. Is that where like all those the the punk scene sort of from that era? It's a
1: co-op and it's um yeah, it's a co-op and which is great. Like very specific rules, but a real awesome space and so I was going to see a lot of straight edge and hardcore and punk bands there. And then other nights of the week, my buddy uh, Bill Rousseau's mom would take us to the Stone and the Omni to see like the late stages of hair metal, the last gasps with bands like Tough And uh, Racer X And A lot of A lot of shreddy stuff So one On one hand There's 20 people in there To see a band Like This band Tough Some measly crowds And these guys Their hair was up They had the (laughs) smoke machine I mean it was They were putting it on the line Which I respect Like They're fucking going for it We're putting on it We're playing for 50,000 people At the Cow Palace right now Uh so even on the, if you will, indie end of it, when I was going to see punk bands, they still were MD, uh, MC, MDC. Yeah. MDC, more dead Christians or whatever. <laughs> uh, all these bands, you know, they're, I liked a loud, I like an aggressive active show. So indie definitely, when I was introduced to bands like pavement and Sebado and whatever, just, Hearing the production and seeing the imagery I did not, it didn't really It wasn't a language I spoke Shoe gaze, Standing Still Like early on when I encountered that My immediate reaction was annoyance Because I read it as disingenuous
0: Do you still feel that way about those bands?
1: No No, I mean it took me, in turn it took me a long time To understand Bob Dylan uh, People played me Bob Dylan in, in high school and I was like I don't know what's happening this will come later. And I did have that thought. Like, I know I'm not, I know I'm wrong. <laughs> but I don't really know. Like his singing to me was like, what? There's good singing. And there's bad singing. Like this is, I listen to a lot of Gordon Lightfoot and John Denver and Willie Nelson. This is all being played in my house. And this is bad singing. So I couldn't understand it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I had a debate with somebody recently who was, they were shit-talking the blues, and they're like, I I can't respect any music that I can play because of the whole three chords thing. And I was like, there's more to it than just the three chords. (laughs) It's like...
1: I mean, yeah, that's a very short-sighted way to look at it, but in terms of ability, I tend to be self-deprecating and maybe some or a lot of ways, but yes, when I would write things early on or listen to music, if I could play it, I kind of dismissed it. Not that I didn't enjoy it, but like if whatever I was able to do, I'm like, well, that's obviously, if I can do it and I'm sitting in my room, that doesn't qualify. I need to get to this level. I need, so in some sense it might've helped propel me forward, but it also prevented me from, You know, I didn't write songs in high school. I started playing guitar when I was like 12, and I didn't write a song for probably eight years because I would just discount whatever I was able to do. That's interesting. Why do you think that was? (sighs) I think there was probably a big dose of fear of failure or fear of success, just fear of putting it out there. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I think there's obviously a self-esteem in there issue somehow. Um, I was very critical. I still am hypercritical. You know, I have to kind of weave little mazes to keep myself out of my own way, out of assessing the editorial brain. I had an acting teacher who said, you would probably be a better director because you're constantly looking, watching the scene from the outside and watching yourself from out here. And it's good for staging and certain elements of it, but it makes it much harder to really get in there. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot. <laughs> a, yeah. And do you still uh, deal with it. even t-
0: it's writing like your album? How was that putting that together? Was that
1: v- much the same way it was? I mean, there's a reason it's recorded on as an app called four track, um, on my phone. That's a very simple four track application, obviously. <laughs> 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 not misleadingly labeled, uh, application. Um, but I had to give myself real constraints because the options of a bajillion tracks and logic and a million effects, and then I have to mix it. And that kind of stuff just overwhelms me and I'll wash out. So kind of a, a mission statement or a brief that, You know, this has to be done here. So as you're going through four tracks, you know, if you've recorded three tracks and you bounce them to one, you've lost any ability to go back and edit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I can't, I'm done. That's now I can do a few more and bounce those. Now I can do one more and bounce it all down. And then I can put it into Pro Tools and add two things that I couldn't get in there, but it really limits the options and, and provides a context that, I seemingly don't have the moral fiber to provide by myself. Did you do most of it yourself though? Yeah, I did all of it myself. Um, It's getting cold in here actually, excuse me. Um, Yeah, I played everything. So like it was very hopscotch, like the concept of trying to go somewhere and get drums and then teach somebody a drum part uh and then now is it gonna sonically line up with what i'm doing here like that alone's enough to make me stop recording for two weeks and like do other stuff so giving myself those limitations i think just provides some more creative i don't know if it's creative but uh Provide some necessity. So like the snare drum on the songs has no snare on it. I had to rip up, the snare was broken. So I ripped up tons of pieces of paper and taped them all over the top and the bottom. And that was a snare ish sound. Uh, and the hi-hat on, um, on the I'm straight cover, the hi-hat is a handful of silverware banging on a piece of wood. Cause I didn't have a hi-hat. So it's, I mean, it is a force because I have logic on my computer, so I have all the things. And I know friends who do have, you know, drum setups where they can send me tracks. But, uh, yeah, I really had to put myself under a thing of, I need to get it done, and I have to get it done quickly.
0: Why, why so quickly? Just to make sure you get it done? Oh, but I
1: have things
0: that have languished forever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can why. relate. <laughs> yeah. So I have... I mean, my first, I have a CD that's not online that I put out in two or three, and it took years. And I did actually, its similarly, I recorded that whole thing on a reel-to-reel four-track. And then I have another EP that I recorded that just didn't sound the way I wanted it to. It sounds good. And that sort of need to go back and go back and go back, wound up with it never, I never put it out, so... So that was a main thing to get it, finish it and call it done and move forward. How do you feel about the finished product? I feel great, but I just want to say the most important step for me with this was finishing a thing and moving on and saying that is done. Just the ability to let go of it and move past was the real crucial step for me. Do you often like
0: quote unquote finish something or quotes I was doing? Uh, And then still obsessed about like, oh fuck, like I wish I would have done this and I wish I would have done that. And so it's hard for you to let go. Yes. And that was totally And have you been able to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. Uh, Go. Oh, I was just, have you been able to let go with this one or do you like,
1: does it still linger in your brain? I think I have been able to let go, you know, uh, Lou's reaction to it Because when I sent it off, I was kind (laughs) of like, I'm just going to do this because I have to send it to some people. But there's no way. I mean, there was that part of me, most of me, which was like, you cannot be sending this to people. (laughs) (laughs) But I also was when I listened to it, I go, this sounds rad. Like, it makes me stoked. It reminds me of. Listening to Feeling Stronger every day In our Oldsmobile with my dad On the A-track And we would put that in and blast it And that's kind of the sensation So I'm like, I don't know Obviously, sonically, there's a lot of issues And there's tons of mistakes But it sounds rad, I think So I was able to At this point in my life It's only taken me like 20 years Appreciate it for what it is So yeah, I have if I listen to it, certainly there's things that jump out, but all in all, I'm pretty happy.
0: I think it's great. And I love, I, I knew a Thank little you. bit about the, the silverware and those kind of things. I love, I don't know, to me that just gives it a different energy and feel that I mean, you you don't get with other albums. You know, it's like there's
1: great. this you.
0: rawness and like ingenuity to it that I love. Like you can right. feel that energy.
1: That's great. Um, um Thank you. I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's another element to doing it that way, is the production value, the production knowledge that's required. How to say this eloquently or succinctly? To get a crazy guitar tone in logic um, requires a lot of technical knowledge, kind of. I feel like and conjumbling everything in on four tracks provides you a lot of sonic sonic atmosphere that I don't know how to do. If you said make a sound that sounds like this, that's that's difficult to do. So it kind of gives you the thing of like recording on my old Porta Studio four twenty four. That adds a sound on that old tape cassette four track. It adds a hiss. It adds a compression. It adds all this stuff that if if I open up a session in Logic, I'm not necessarily going to be able to recreate. Yeah. So it's a way of like, I am I put a branch out in front of me, knowing that I'd trip on it later <laughs> and, uh, and then backed up and ran down the sidewalk and tripped on it. It's like, okay, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, well, I, and I think that's the other thing I appreciate. It's like, I feel like this seems to happen a lot too with bands after that start off raw and then they get, too polished and too like and it drives me nuts (laughs) it's like it's like it's it's like they get to a certain level and they're like no it's everything's got to be crisp and clean and i'm like that's not why everybody liked you (laughs) it's like not to say that you can't grow or but it's like i don't know i like a hiss and a
1: pop and all that i love the like on my albums my favorite albums there's always the things that i gravitate to are those weird And they're all over huge, huge legendary records. Um, I don't really listen to that much pop, pop music today. But um, I also don't have a great patience, uh, amount of patience. So it's like trying on pants for me in terms of a take. I've got like three takes in me, and then I just don't care to a certain degree. Like, it's not the ability, which I... I'm working very hard to to attain because it does bite me in the ass a lot to really work apart and finesse it and make it right and figure the whole thing out and learn it for myself and get a long take that is correct with no mistakes. Um, It's like that's my next personal challenge because I don't want to do everything just based on a lack uh, or impatience and a lack of technical know-how. Um, But I don't think I'll ever be able to stamp that out of myself Because I am impatient And that's how I play So no matter how many times I do it It's going to come out a little conjumbled
0: Yeah, I was going to ask If what you were approaching uh, Are you working on another album?
1: Yeah I've written a bunch of um, I guess there's like five new songs That are much more (laughs) Kind of like James Gang, early James Gang Is kind of what I'm thinking of um, Like ripping Some ripping guitar But not in like a searing Lead tone Kind of shredder way Yeah it did, Like Joe Walsh, I love Joe Walsh His playing, his tones Like he's shredding so hard But it's not fast, it's not technical It's not going to make me have to practice six hours a day, like running scales and doing pinky dexterity exercises to do. Yeah. What,
0: what appeals to you that kind of his sort of playing? Is it just cause it's more, I don't know. Is that more honest to you in a way? Like, cause sometimes I feel
1: like shredding is a little bit more like dick wavy for lack of a better. Shredding definitely went into the dick wavy uh, sphere. But no, I don't look at shredding as being dishonest. I think in any, any sphere and style of playing, I mean, there's, I think a buttload of dishonest, uh, simple playing that's stylistically just trying to be cool. You know, I think you see that everywhere. Yeah, Um, And I think for me, that's one thing that like that kind of music, when I was younger, that attracted me to it, it seemed very honest, hair metal for lack of a better term seems super honest. Like the bands that I was into, they seem like people who went on stage and were like, when I go on stage, the adrenaline boost, I'm psyched. I am psyched. So that seemed like a very genuine and honest reaction and interaction with the crowd. Let's get more lights, have explosions. Hell yeah. Explosions. There's 30,000 people people screaming like classic rock and roll screams. That's my immediate reaction to that music is to want to scream and run down the street. So when I'd <laughs> sneeze, I, kind of see that I mean, my first awareness of hearing Van Halen was, uh, we were riding dirt bikes in front of my buddy's house and somebody was cranking running with the devil from an upstairs window. And I still remember like the, it gave me goosebumps and like gave me a, like I went full cornholio. <laughs> like, oh, ah, and like riding in circles, going off this curb jump, just over and over again, this sensation of like adrenaline. So that dick wavy element, uh, I think it, it did, it's definitely there, uh, but it came much later. So it didn't seem dishonest. So somebody like Joe Walsh, I think, was that of his time. Like he was a, pushing the edge of technical ability in a lot of ways. But he also has such a combination of real subtle nuance. Um, and his tones never overtake the song. A lot of the shreddy material, like the song is EQ'd and built around the guitarist's tone and kind of working backwards. And there's a sonic destruction, if you will, that comes from that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean it like when I said dick wavy. I definitely uh, wasn't. Uh, no, I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm like, that music sucks because... I love Van Halen and uh and guys like David Lee Roth. I'm just like, fuck, how does he do like how did they do it every night? Like that's just like
1: they're they're like gods amongst men. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when you think about that guy, I mean there's some live performances of like eighty three or eighty four on the Fair Warning tour, and you hear how he's singing and like he can't sing a lick anymore. The dude's voice is it's it's horrible to listen to, sort of. Sorry, Dave. But you listen to him, just his crowd banter, this is not a person saving anything for the next night's show. And they're doing a triple, that was a three-night run in Oakland, I think, in 83, just bellowing and screaming and yelling. The fact that he can even speak, like, that's a genetic gift. <laughs> 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 able to do it that long at all is staggering.
0: I've always felt like he should do a Vegas, like he should do an
1: I do one once. I heard that. It's I'm so it's, it's painful too. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, I saw some of that. Watching some of his iterations, it's all entertaining. The guy's amazing, but some of it you just it's. You know, I have him in mind in like eighty two, eighty three, the Fair Warning tour, the King of the World, and some of the Vegasy stuff gets a little weird. Oh. <laughs> That's it's, it's just I mean I even liked his Louis Prima stuff But whatever I did too
0: And I find I just find Like I found out That he was a EMT Like after he left Van Halen Did you ever hear that Like he went to New York And it's like The guy's life is just insane
1: He's had a crazy life He used to He took a boat up the Amazon They had a tour break They took a boat Like Fitzcarraldo style Up the Amazon Uh He's a maniac. I mean, he's full-body tattoos done in the old Japanese style, which is apparently staggeringly painful. Wow. Um, and he's a good watercolorist. Is he really? He went and studied in Japan this kind of ink drawing and in watercolor for like six years.
0: God damn. <laughs> it's like, he's like, like there should just be a... Because I feel like every time I turn around, I learn something, like talk about him, I learn something new that about him it's just endlessly fascinating
1: an endlessly fascinating person i want to meet him but i also don't because i feel like he's, <laughs> i feel like weird not to be, wouldn't mind a quick snapshot but
0: <laughs> uh what was your uh why did you choose uh, i'm straight for the album because it's one of my personal pick- favorites
1: by jonathan richmond it's it's a classic i didn't actually pick it my buddy nick ebling who's a director and a writer um, he was making a film Was he making a film Or He asked me to do that for He asked me to record a cover of it And um, I recorded the cover And I was so This is speaks to my How I assess my own work I listened back to it And I was going to send it to him And that was recorded long, That was recorded years ago Uh And I just thought it's so janky and sounds so bad. This is someone who wants to put this in a movie. I can't send this to a person who's a person. I can't even be, I shouldn't be, I can't be a musician and record this and send it to someone, this sounds crazy. And I ghosted him and didn't talk to him for a couple years, a year. Dropped off the map. And then finally he hit me up one day and said, hey, I'm doing this other thing. Would you, um, I can't remember what it was about. And then he said, by the way, whatever happened to that cover? And I was honest with him. I said, I'll tell you the truth. I was embarrassed. I recorded it and it sounded bonkers and it was weird. And I'm like, what is this? And he goes, well, don't be an asshole. Just send it to me. Like, let me hear it at least. And I was like, all right, whatever. And he hit me back within five minutes and was ecstatic and loved it. And uh, I really taught me kind of how I have to listen to my music with other people's ears, maybe something or not, at least not my own. I have to somehow learn the skill of divorcing myself enough to let myself move forward. And um, off the back of that, his friend Andrew asked me to produce some music for a spoken word thing he was recording. He was putting out a book of poetry. And so it led to a whole period of, stuff but he asked me to record that longest short answer sorry
0: no i was uh, have you been able to go back to other songs that maybe you thought were similar to that where you're like oh i can't this is no this is garbage or whatever you said uh, and reassess uh, other things that you've recorded in a different light
1: yes not entirely successfully but that was definitely a jumping off point for all these songs. Because I recorded it and basically, although I think I did that one on Pro Tools. And I think I would just gotten Pro Tools and didn't know how to use it at all. But I, you know, I had a microphone and I recorded some of it when I was multi-tracking using the earbud on the Apple uh, headset. So I was like, that's a sound Like getting a sound A producer has a sound You know, if you, people work with this producer You can recognize and go oh. But at this point, I still didn't have a sound That I felt like I have a sound um, I've got a name I felt like I was going to Jim Croce's song <laughs> <side>. Yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's the word in the croaking toad uh, So Inside Logic, I also don't think I have a sound. So that prompted me to approach this in, in a very similar fashion. It's effective, it's quick, it doesn't leave me enough time to examine too much. And even when I do, I can't go backwards. I am going to put like this old, old stuff online because of that. Um, yeah, so it was a huge learning. It didn't, it didn't put me pedal to the metal being active suddenly on my own stuff. But it definitely opened my perspective.
0: Do you have, do you share it now more often with other people to get a perspective,
1: or does that? Because I know. That. No, I share it less because what I tend to do. What I realize I did a lot of, and I've heard comics talk about this, and maybe you can speak to this as a stand-up. Um, a failed stand-up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no failed stand-up if you got on stage you succeeded
0: <laughs> i like that attitude
1: i had fun i just i was it's never... also in the writing right Pardon? The writing it's in the writing the writing is the thing the stage and the telling of the jokes is the afterthought i've heard that said
0: yeah i think there's some people who can get up there and just uh, uh riff and talk and be hilarious uh i don't know
1: very few, though I think most people get up there and riff and talk
0: aren't hilarious. I heard Chappelle. My buddy opened for Chappelle and said somebody said something in the audience and he went off on fifteen for fifteen minutes. That we can, yeah. that yeah, and someone was like, it was fifteen minutes off the top of his head that most comedians would murder someone to have like, right, it, right. But he's, he's just
1: very rarefied air. He's achieved. He's like gotten up in the atmosphere. It's have like whether it's music or any type of art they get they hit that for a while and I wonder if he'll come down or when
0: yeah I mean prior to me prior always but prior always made it about his life and he was his bare honesty and right and I feel like that's hard to achieve and it's your life is just it's gotta be exhausting
1: as so yeah and as someone who's married with kids like Chappelle you have to be willing to eviscerate your entire life and everyone in it and expose them in every way to do, I think, what Pryor did. And if you've got happy children and, and a home, you're not going to do that. I think so- <laughs> It is you know?
0: like there are those and I think just just relates to art in general or like just that what level of are you willing to put yourself into it and out there? Like, I watched the Belushi documentary, and I was just like, of course he died at 33. Like, it was just everything. I felt like that movie was more of a cautionary tale about... It. Yeah, it's just, he thought fame, and he wanted that, and he thought it would cure his problems, and it just amplified everything, and it just, I'm like, fame is... And to just put yourself into it that much, it's just like, you're not
1: gonna win. was <laughs> like... I've, I've seen it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, w- and I think I probably was pursuing that a lot when I was younger to go back to that. And that's a reason it wasn't working was because I had not calibrated and made myself acutely aware of what I was actually pursuing. So,
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. At seeing friends get famous or being around fame made me quickly made me realize that's not something for me. So I, like like mm-hmm. I'm not built for it. I would I would have been one of those guys who was running through the mall with a pistol or something, and then would have been like, "What happened to him?" It's like he <laughs> made it. Got famous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you hear about celebrities cracking, and it's like, of course, like no, that's not a normal space to live in. Yeah. Um but I, what was the I I don't know if this is a uh, I'm second guessing my question but I'm curious what was the reasoning for Gavin Gruesome for as the title was there
1: was it just it, fun or was there a political <laughs> angle was, Well I needed a title sort of quickly because everything was moving kind of fast um and I've always called Gavin Newsom Gavin Gruesome just right away, like, as soon as I was aware of his name. I was like, Gavin Gruesome because I like wordplay, silly, ridiculous wordplay. So I just would refer to him as that. I think he's a, an interesting, f- absurd figure. Like, anyone who styles himself, like, image-wise after Patrick Bateman, you know, <laughs> I question <laughs> right away. He's just <laughs> such a... <laughs> looking bastard just like that hair and consummate weirdo politician like that he's buffed and quaffed within an inch of his life looks like he has a buffing machine in the morning and I don't even dislike him like I think he's handled the pandemic actually correctly much to the I know a lot of friends who would jump through a window upon hearing me say that but so um It's just catchy. It's a catchy phrase. Of course, there's a lot of stuff going on, so it's as good as any title. There's no real relation to anything, though, beyond I like saying it. Um, And it is catchy. It sticks. And and he's doing a lot of crap right now. And the reason I was inside and had all this time to focus was because we were on lockdown. So that kind of removed any outside uh, distractions. Was
0: was most of this recorded during the pandemic
1: yeah i did not know that uh there are elements there were uh, like the i'm straight cover is quite old i think there are pieces that there's soundscapes and parts of songs that are just things i have on tape that i had down but uh yeah oh but showing the music to people i've stopped showing it to people and i think this goes back to my tendency to perform and do things for a performative reason mm-hmm. is because that would kind of give me on an egotistical level maybe or the bad id level what I needed. That itch was scratched. So if I finish something halfway, I wrote a verse in a chorus and show it to a bunch of people and they like it, the impetus to finish it, it kind of would just dissipate. The other thing that would happen is if people didn't like it right away, I'd toss it because I'm showing it to them to get feedback. So if I show it to you and you go, I don't really like it, then I'd throw it away and I'm like, I need to reassess what I'm doing this for. Yeah. And what I'm trying to get when I do that. And what happens is this an effective working process to keep showing it to people. And it's not. And I kind of really need to go back to a way of not showing it to anybody and just plop it out there. And turn into the musician. Like, I'm past the point of being a 23 year old sensation or a 28 year old or a 32 year old sensation. So, I need to just be writing stuff and releasing it in whatever form that happens in and moving on and creating more and get that process going so it's constant as opposed to trying to perfect anything like I could make it perfect. If there is a perfect, you know, I'm not in sunset sound with this incredible setup. So that's a lost cause. Um, so I'm really trying not to show it to people and not to get anyone's opinion.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I get it. Cause you showed something and then you're, it's, you're fucked. Cause then that's all in your head.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. It and is, it's, what did they think about this? Now I have to show them the new version. I showed them that version. What do you think of the second chorus? Yeah. So that's my goal.
0: <laughs> all right um anything to, uh, i'm gonna put everything in the show notes anything that uh other than Bandcamp and website or that I, we need to plug or that you would like to plug that we may be unaware of
1: i'll uh i'll send a, there's a i do have a new website i'll send that there's just like the basic the yeah the links the twitter the instagram i suppose and the first one being the perpetual doom Bandcamp, i suppose
0: okay i'll make sure that's all in there Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, man.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please remember to go to the Linktree uh, link in my show notes and support me on Patreon if you can, or just tell your friends about the show. That would really mean a great deal to me. Tell people about the show and follow my social media. And again, if, if you like join the Patreon, become a subscriber, and get bonus material, videos, blogs, all kinds of stuff. Thank you very much for listening.